<clears throat> so we are concluding our, our uh, study of the life of Joseph uh, this week. The story is not yet done. Um, he, he goes on and uh, on for another nine chapters. Um, it take you about a half an hour to read it. I encourage you to do it because there's some still some twists and turns, some um, some adventures left in front of uh, Joseph. Uh, and um, I'll spoil it for you by telling you he does uh, eventually reconcile with his family. But um, but I do encourage you to read it. But we're going to stop today uh, uh, at this point uh, where kind of the turning point in Joseph's life, where where Joseph has been um, through a whole lot. He's been through slavery and uh, uh, prisoner. Um, and now things are uh, turning around for him, um, and and the reason is because there's there's so much that we've already learned. And I want to take take stock for a minute and just kind of remind ourselves of what we've seen over the past couple of weeks. We've seen first of all that that um, Joseph uh, famously had the had the um, the the favor of his father. His father gave him the the Technicolor dream coat or the the coat with long sleeves or however you want to translate it. Um, uh, Joseph had this fancy uh, garment as a reminder of God's, God, I mean, of, uh, of Jacob's favor, his father's favor. And I think one of the things we learn um, from Joseph is that while we might want God to be the kind of father that Jacob was, the kind who dotes on us and gives us special privileges, what we actually have is the same kind of heavenly father that that Joseph had, the one who mysteriously sometimes doesn't protect us from harm. And we say, what what are you up to? Why? Why aren't you treating me the way Jacob does? Why don't you give me favor and special jackets? And instead, we get sometimes the kind of heavenly father that Joseph had. And we, we wonder about that. We, we've learned about the way that, that nevertheless, even when God um, doesn't give us the kind of favor we might want, that God is with us. That when, when we have lost everything else, what we've learned from Joseph is that God is still with us. We've learned from Joseph that sometimes we just have to wait. Um, Joseph waited 13 years for the, this uh, uh, sentence we begin our lesson with today. He waited 13 years for God's timing. And sometimes we are called to wait as well. And we've also learned that, uh, that we should have big plans, that, that we, should have, we should have big dreams um, and hold our plans loosely. That, that God calls us as believers to have great, big, God-sized dreams, the kind of dreams that that Joseph had, but at the same time to hold on to our plans very loosely because we don't know how God might aid us. God might send aid to help us accomplish our our goal from a different quarter than we expected. So not to hold on to our plans, but to hold on to our big dreams. So we've learned a lot from Joseph's life already, and there's still nine chapters to go. So what I want to do, rather than kind of um, exhaust every little possible learning out of Joseph's life, I want to stop because about at this point, if you're like me, you get to this place where you kind of begin to mentally file Joseph away as a saint. Okay? And the problem with a saint is that, is that, you know, there, there, there's a technical definition for saint, and we're all saints, right? If you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a disciple of Jesus, um, it doesn't matter how good a follower you are, if you follow Jesus, then you are a saint. That's the technical meaning of a saint. It means somebody who is set apart for God's service. So, so in that sense, we're all saints. But we know when we talk about saints, we know what we mean. When we say somebody is a saint, when we say, oh, she's a saint, um, uh, when, when we say he's a saint, what we mean is there's somebody that we admire but don't necessarily envy. 
Uh, this is the definition we came up with years ago in a Bible study I was in. Um, we decided that there are these people whose lives we admire, but we don't envy. And, and you know, the example that we always, we always turn to is Mother Teresa, right? The, the world is a richer place because of the work of Mother Teresa. She, she uh, experienced God's call in her life. She left everything behind. She went to Calcutta, and she spent her entire life serving the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor. She literally washed lepers. So we admire her. But we're not sure if we envy her because we don't know if we really want to drop everything and go to Calcutta and work with the poorest of the poor. So we say, Mother Teresa, she's a saint. Or maybe another example might be Martin Luther King. Right? The, the world is a better place because of him. There's no question about that. Uh, we, we admire him for his work for justice and for equality. We can look at Martin Luther King and say, I'm so glad he lived and I admire the, the, the Dickens out of Martin Luther King. I'm just not sure I envy him because he had a tough life. There were the bomb threats. There were the, the midnight phone calls. There was the stabbing. There was ultimately the assassination that ended his life. And so we look at Martin Luther King and we admire him, but we don't necessarily envy him. And I think when we get to a place like this in the life of Joseph, we can kind of say, okay, all right, I admire Joseph. I admire the way God used him to save the people of Israel and the people of Egypt both, not just to save his own family, his own kinspeople, but to save the entire uh, ancient world in that area, area, the area around Egypt, that God used him mightily. We just say, I'm not so sure I envy him. I don't want my brothers to betray me. Okay, I don't want to be sold into slavery. I don't want to be brought up on false charges and thrown into prison and spend 13 years waiting for my opportunity to get out. So we admire Joseph. But there's a danger that what we might do is simply file Joseph away and say, good for him. All right, He's a saint. I'm not a saint. Um, I admire him. I just don't envy him. So there's a there's a place that we get to where we, we acknowledge that there is a gap between our theory and our practice. We have a theory of what, what Christians can be, what people of faith are called to be. And then we acknowledge there's, there's oftentimes in my life and probably for, for many of you, there is a gap between what you acknowledge in theory and what you actually experience in practice. There's a, there's a gap. And because of this gap, um, I think that's one of the reasons people who are not followers of Christ look at the church and say, eh. you know, they, they, they say, you know, I look at, I look at Christians at, at work or at school and, you know, you're not that much better than me, you know, and, and the statistics prove them out. If you look at statistics, you know, famously the, the statistic for divorce among Christians is not significantly better. It's a little bit better, a couple of percent, but it's not like night and day difference the way we would hope. Uh, for for Christians as opposed to uh, uh, people who are not followers of Christ. And that's true in a number of other areas, that, that our lives um, experience the, 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 the practice as opposed to the theory of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Because we, we say, well, yeah, there's saints, but then there's people like me, and there's a gap between our, our experience and our theory. And, and what I think a lot of people in the world do is they look at us and they say, well, it's because you're a bunch of hypocrites. Right? You say one thing, but you do something else. And I think on the inside, we can say, well, it's not that we're hypocrites. I mean, I understand where you're coming from, 
But it's not that we're hypocrites. We, we want to be different, but we just aren't. We want to be generous. We want to be generous. I don't think there are uh, people in, in many churches who say, secretly, I don't want to be generous at all. I don't buy that. I just say it as a, as a way of kind of looking good to the world. I don't think many people really are that way. I think what it is, is they say, I'd love to be generous. I just don't know where to get the money, right? All my money is committed. In fact, I'm in debt so much, my money is overcommitted. I don't know how to be generous. Uh, people say, I, I want to serve. I want to serve, but my life is busy. I'm just swamped. I've got obligations. There's people I need to, to be involved with, and I just don't have time to serve. So, so we say that. We say, I want my kids to become Christians. I want them to, to learn, uh, to, to know and love Jesus as their Savior. But within reason. I, I heard a story about uh, three girls from a college in Colorado and they were in a church youth group, and they went on a short-term mission trip. The the church had um, something um, that they'd set up, and they went to a short-term mission trip to Uganda, and the girls didn't come back. See, the girls got the vision while they were in Uganda that they needed to set up an orphanage, and they're still there. They, they've come home since then, but only briefly, to raise money and awareness for their orphan project back in Uganda. And ultimately, the family came around and said, okay, all right, I can see what you're doing, and it's a good thing. But there was that time when the family kind of said, "What? you should finish college first, right? We've been spending a lot of money on your education, and you can't just go off and follow God. It is that gap. The gap, maybe it's a bigger gap than that, but the gap between our theory and our practice that, that is the problem. And it makes us feel, it certainly makes me feel sometimes like a really bad Christian. And, and, and not like a hypocrite, but just like a bad Christian. I say to myself, I'm not living out what my theory calls me to. So what I want to do is I want to look at one little part of this lesson. Before we let go of Joseph, I want to look at one little thing that is easy to overlook in the story of Joseph as we go on. See, uh, whenever I've heard people talk about Joseph, whenever I've read it before, what people do is they point out the kind of the big lesson. What is the big lesson of Joseph? Uh, Joseph says it himself. He's he's reconciling with his brothers. So again, I'm spoiling it a little bit. Um, and Joseph says in chapter 45 and again in chapter 50, he says two different ways. Um, let me find it. In 45, he says to his brothers, he says, don't don't be upset. These are the guys who tried to kill him and then sold him into slavery. He says, he says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And then in chapter 50, uh, the brothers are kind of having trouble believing Joseph means it, and I, I would certainly have trouble believing anybody who, who was so saintly. Um, the brothers are concerned that maybe Joseph didn't mean it, so they come to him again. And again, Joseph says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order, in order to preserve a numerous people as he's doing today. So this is the way I've always seen Joseph. I've always heard Joseph in that light, that Joseph is this saint who can kind of shrug off all the things that have happened to him and say, but look, God turned it all to roses. Isn't that great? And so we look at Joseph and we go, wow, you know, I admire you, Joseph, but I'm not sure I envy you. 
And so what I want to do is I want to look at a different part of the story of Joseph, the part we, we just heard today. We, we heard how Joseph, um, he's been brought up out of prison and uh, he explains the, the uh, dream that Pharaoh had and he goes beyond that. He says, and here's what you should do about it. And then Pharaoh is pleased with this proposal and he makes him his prime minister. And so he gets all the accoutrements of power. He rides in the chariot and so forth. And that happens in verse 46. Joseph was 36, uh, 30 years old when he entered the service. And then he goes on and he uh, sets aside all the grain um, and he, so much grain that he quits measuring it. And then there is this little part that's very easy to skip over. If you're like me, when you read the Bible, one of the, one of the things that's good if you're behind schedule in your reading plan is when you come to a genealogy and it's a bunch of names and you go, all right, you know, skip, right? And, and this is, <laughs> This is the way I do it. I'm sorry. I, I'm a bad Christian and you can pray for me. But um, when I come to those parts of the Bible, it's so easy to skip over them. And I've had a Hebrew class. I can actually pronounce the names. You know, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I can pronounce it. Um, but, but what do you do when you come to these? I'll tell you what you should do is slow down and look at them because there's something really fascinating about this next few verses. It says, Before the years of famine came, Joseph had two sons, whom Azanath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, The Lord has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The second he named Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. Now, uh, we, we looked at this last week and we saw the way that Manasseh and Ephraim are collectively the tribe of Joseph. In the history of Israel, there is no tribe of Joseph. There's two half-tribes, the half-tribe of Manasseh and the half-tribe of uh, Ephraim. And the really curious thing is that each of them is bigger than the other tribes. They've got the best farmland and they've got the most people. So really, um, if you're, if you're coming at the Bible from a Western mindset, uh, kind of the, the way we think, uh, as, as inheritors of Greek culture, we say that looks more like 13 tribes and the two biggest ones are Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, but in the Hebrew mindset, these are half tribes. They're the two half tribes of Joseph. And so we can kind of say, okay, all right, that's where they come from, Ephraim and Manasseh. But it's worth stopping for a minute and reading what he says about them. What do the names mean? He named the firstborn Manasseh. And and if you're reading it in a Bible, most Bibles will have a little footnote that says Manasseh means making to forget. It, it is it is the, the way by which God makes a Joseph forgets. So he says, what has he forgotten? He made him forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Think about that. All his hardship. You know, if you've ever looked at a picture of the president before and after his term of office, you know, since Eisenhower maybe, you know, who was bald. But but if you look at all the presidents since then, they go into office and they've got dark hair and they come out with gray hair. So uh, Joseph spends seven years as prime minister. My guess is he got a few gray hairs in the process. So, so Joseph has had some hardship just as the prime minister of Egypt. But then he had all the hardship before that. He was in a dungeon. He was in a dungeon in Egypt in an era before Amnesty International. Okay. I don't know what that was like, but my guess is it was pretty horrific. Uh, Joseph was, um, a prisoner for at least two years and probably more like six or eight years in, in one of the dungeons of Pharaoh. And before that, he was a slave. Um, and and uh, things couldn't have been a lot better as a slave. Um, frankly, I wouldn't want to live as Pharaoh in the ancient world because they didn't have painkillers and they didn't have doctors, right, or meaningful doctors. So, I mean, to me, just living 
as Pharaoh would have been a hardship, but he was not living as hardship. He was not living as Pharaoh. He was living as a prisoner and then before that as a slave. And he says God, God made him forget all his hardship. God made Joseph forget all of that. And he says, and he made him forget his family. What does he mean by that? Well, if you read ahead, later on, Joseph's brothers come to him and it tells us that they didn't recognize him. He recognizes them, but but they didn't recognize him. So clearly, he didn't forget who they were. But what he has forgotten is the pain of the betrayal, the pain that his brothers would sell him into slavery, try to murder him, and then sell him into slavery. He's forgotten that pain. He's forgotten the pain of loss. He hasn't seen his father in uh, uh 20, 22 years. He hasn't seen his father or his younger brother, the one who was not involved in the plot. He hasn't seen Benjamin or Jacob for 22 years. And God has taken away the pain of that loss. He says, God has made me forget. God has brought him healing. And then he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. Uh, he, he, never, he never becomes an Egyptian. He just lives there the rest of his life. This is the land of his misfortunes. He may be prime minister. He may be running the place for all practical purposes. But Egypt is the land of his misfortune. And he says, despite that, despite the fact that I don't get to go home, I don't get to go back where I came from, here in the land of my misfortunes, God has made me fruitful. God has made me fruitful in the sense that I got two kids, but also in the sense that my life has been redeemed. I'm no longer a a, a prisoner I now have significance. I, I am making a difference in my society. I, I have, I have, uh, the world is a better place because of me. God has made me fruitful even here in the land of my misfortune. See, the lesson of Joseph's life is not that Joseph is a saint, that Joseph is so wonderful and we can just look at him, put him on a pedestal and move on. The lesson of Joseph's life is not about a wonderful person named Joseph, but a wonderful God who brings healing and significance to people's lives. That's the lesson that Joseph has been able to forget his pain and to heal from it and able then to be fruitful even in the land of his misfortune. It's easy for us to forget this. Uh, uh, whether whether we whether we look at it from one side or the other, it's easy to forget that there is both a universality and a particularity to God's grace. There's a universality. You know the famous verse. You know you've heard it, you've seen it at football games. Uh, John three sixteen. It says, uh, "God so loved the world that he that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life." There is this universality. God loves the world. God loves the whole world. But he gave his son so that whoever, individuals who believe in him, can have individually eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life is life of a different caliber, a different character than biological life. It is life that is connected to God. It is, it is, um, uh, Jesus talks to a woman once and he says, it is a spring of water welling up to eternal life, that you are connected to God and God, God's power flows through you. That is eternal life. It is, it is a, the life that is characteristic of eternity, not the life that is characteristic of 
the world. Jesus says we can have that kind of life through a relationship with him. And it is because of that that we can find healing and then become fruitful to be part of his work in saving the world. Uh, Paul writes it differently. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if anyone is in a Christ, there is a new creation. And then he goes on to say, it is because of that that they are connected to Christ and are able to be part of God's reconciling the world to himself. There is a particularity to God's grace. It applies not just to the world as a whole, but to you. It doesn't just apply to Egypt. It applies to Joseph. God gives him the ability to forget his pain and the ability to be fruitful in hardship. But God is also saving Egypt and Israel. So what's the application? What do we take from this? Well, the first thing is, notice the order. Uh, Manasseh is the firstborn. God makes him forget. God brings healing to the life of Joseph. So if you're hurting, if, 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 if you have been hurt or you have done things that hurt, the lesson of Scripture is that God can heal you. God can bring healing to your life. But there is also a fruitfulness following on that, the fruitfulness. So, so uh, this is the time, uh, I was thinking about this because you know this is where my head goes to this time of year. This is the time of year when we dodge our phones because we know the nominating committees out there trying to fill slates of people on, on the, the council and on the parish relations committee, um, uh, nominating committee. Uh, we, know that, we know they're out there. They're asking people to serve in the church. They're asking people to be fruitful, right, to make a difference in the church. And, and I think it's easy to say, look, I don't have the time. I can't do it. And to say, this is just going to be one of those places where my theory and my practice are going to be different. Okay, I, I believe I could be fruitful, but just not right now or not, not because of my commitments and so forth. And so I would say to you, if, if your commitments are there, I, I'm not going to judge you. Um, you know what your commitments are better than I ever will. You know, you know the people who are depending on you. You know, you know what your your financial time, people commitments are, and so if you can if you can say, look, I just can't do it right now, then fine, right? That's okay. Uh, God says, heal yourself first, okay, or let God heal you first. You need to be healed first from whatever those things are. But it is in the process of serving as prime minister that Joseph finds the healing and finds the fruitfulness. So I would encourage you to to maybe step out in faith and say, look, I'm not sure how this works. I'm not sure how God can can make this possible. So whether it's inside the church or outside the church, maybe um, you know, th- you're going to be praying, I certainly hope, all week long for Anchorage. And maybe in the course of that, something will come to your attention and you'll say, I wonder if God is asking me to serve outside the church on this committee or this this ministry, um, this homeless shelter, whatever that might be. And, and it has nothing to do with the church at all. But you feel that God is calling you to work beyond the doors of the church. Maybe God's calling you to give or to serve somewhere else. It is in that fruitfulness, that period of fruitfulness, that Joseph finds the healing. I think the healing comes first, but it is through the process of serving. So I would encourage you to take that with you. There is, in God's grace, both universality and particularity. God wants to heal you. God wants to make you fruitful.
even as he saves the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son so that anyone who believes him can have eternal life. Thanks be to God. Amen.